Once more, I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn, as we have been for the last few Sundays, to Haggai. Haggai chapter 1. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you again for the time that we have to look into your word, for this is your voice to us. We know that as we read the scriptures, we hear you speak, and we know that wherever we are in the scriptures, you're speaking to us today. You're not giving us biographies or histories just for the sake of knowing, but you are addressing us, and we must hear these words through Jesus as that which we must do, which we must think. So, Father, help us then today. Help each one here to give ear to your word for your glory and their good, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. What comes to your mind when you think of the word obedience? Well, for most of us, I'm afraid, we think of obedience as misery, subservience, second-class citizenship, gutting it out for God. Maybe you think it's drudgery because you bend your will to the will of someone else. Maybe it's a lack of freedom. But what does God think is involved in that transaction that we would call obedience? Well, let's find out from the prophet Haggai today. Now, you remember, the man Haggai had appeared among the people of Judah as they had returned to their homeland And he appeared as a prophet or a messenger from God, demanding obedience from his people. You remember that these exiles had returned nearly 20 years before our text, and they had returned to the land of their fathers, and they began building the temple, but when opposition arose, they quit building it some 20 years or from 16 years earlier. And for 16 years, they worshiped among the ruins of the temple, When on August 29th, 520 B.C., as Haggai tells us, he made his appearance. And his indictment was severe. He said to them, you've devoted yourselves to your own comforts while the temple lies in ruins. You have said to God that you don't want him. Here was the unmistakable call to obedience. He said to them, start building the temple. And 23 days later, on September 21st, 520 B.C., they began. We know that because in verse 15, he dates it for us. In verse 15, he says to us, On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And so they responded on that day in obedience to the call of God. And on that day, this message then came from Haggai. Let's look at our text for this morning, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. 
And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Now, as you read this text, it appears that there's more than just the people did what they were told to do. There's more going on here. Now, keep in mind that this is God's word for us in the 21st century. God wrote these words way back then in 520 B.C. with you in mind sitting here in the 21st century. This is not just some sort of something to give us a history of what God said. This is the authoritative word of God. He has something to say to you. And much more happens. If you look at this text carefully, much more happens in this transaction uh, that we call obedience. If you look at the account carefully, you're going to see that Haggai communicates much more than the people did what they were supposed to do. By telling the story of this ancient people's obedience, God would motivate you to obey. His intention is to motivate you to obey through the words of this prophet. You who are living at this time in the the world's history, who are living under the new covenant. What does God have to say to us? Well, here's the first thing. Know the character of obedience. Know the character of obedience. Obedience consists of wholehearted devotion. That's what we have to see. Obedience consists of wholehearted devotion. Now, what was the disobedience like? What's the character of disobedience? Now, again, remember what we've looked at. Were they blatantly rebellious? Were they cursing God? Maybe they were departing from the covenant in gross sin. Is there evidence of any idols here? None of that is evident. So what's the problem? The problem was that even though they were religious... They were religious. They were sacrificing the required sacrifices. All of that was going on. The problem then was their neglect, their apathy, their indifference. This is the problem. Yes, they had prayer and sacrifice, but such devotion did not interfere with their devotion to convenience and comfort. They had their wonderful religious exercises, but they did not have God. They did not really, they they weren't really thinking about God's presence among them. That just wasn't occurring to them. And the refusal to build the temple was essentially a rejection of God's presence, a rejection of God's grace. They again, it wasn't that they were blatantly doing horrible things. It was they just got involved with other things. And ah, they just didn't have time to build the temple, which was the very sign of the presence of God. What commandment had they violated? Of what were they guilty? Well, the sentence that God pronounced on them was pronounced every day they met for worship. When they met for worship, they would make the great, the, the great uh, confession, which in Judaism is called the Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called Shema because that's the Hebrew word for hear. And here's what they would confess. confess. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. They would recite that 
every time they met for the sacrifices at the altar. But they were much more devoted to comfort, pleasure, and convenience than to their God. It occurs to me that oftentimes we think we're being obedient. And we're obedient in in certain areas, but then there are some that ah, we, we just don't think about, right? Um, we're not characterized necessarily by wholehearted devotion. We're, we're comfortable in our religious life. We go to church. We think it's important. We think it's important to hear the word of God. We gather. We say all the right things, but then you might say to yourself, yeah, that's good. You know, I need to grow in patience. Yeah, I need to grow in that, and yet not make any efforts in that area, Right? Um, we pass over those failings and just say, yeah, I really need to repent of that and really, by God's grace, work in growing in that area. But we don't think just ignoring that shows a lack of obedience, but it does. Obedience is a wholehearted affair. And obedience finds concrete, specific expression, right? Right? they began to build the house of the Lord. You know what? It's easy to claim that you love the Lord your God. It's easy to claim that sort of thing. But devotion will always find express, uh, concrete expression. So at night, right, I lean over my lovely wife and I kiss her And I say, honey, you're the only woman for me. I love you with my whole heart. I really love her. But those words would be meaningless if I had fussed to her earlier in the day about crawling under our house and all that yucky dirt. We only have a crawl space. And working on the plumbing that day. She said, honey, would you work on the plumbing? Oh, I hate going under the house. I got other things to do. I don't want to do that. Ugh, I hate doing that. Then my words at night don't mean much, right? If I really loved her, I would crawl under that house. And by the way, I have one day in particular in my mind years ago when I did that. And it was as bad as I'm describing. But at least I think it expressed love towards my wife. And their devotion became evident as they started the hard work of gathering the timbers in the hills and starting the masonry work on the temple. Devotion to God becomes evident as you actually start operating in those areas where you have been deficient, right? They were deficient. And so they started in the area where they were the most deficient. Now, what else can we say about that obedience? Such obedience grows out of the fear of God. Look at verse 12. Um, You'll you'll excuse me. I'm getting to be an old man, and, and, and it's hard to see the numbers of the verses anymore. Verse 12. And the people feared the Lord. There it is. And the people feared the Lord. Now fear means to respect, to reverence, to give attention to, to hold in awe. All those are involved in that word fear. And you see what God had said to them earlier. Some days earlier, 
You see it in verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God was now honored. They showed the fear of the Lord. They honored God. In contrast to their worship of convenience, giving to God, as long as it didn't interfere with them paneling their houses, as long as it didn't interfere with their pleasures, they now honored him by building the temple. They showed the fear of God by building the temple. Instead of careless indifference, what happened is now they became intent on building the temple of God. No longer careless indifference, but going to the hills and getting the timber to to build the temple. But someone objects, we can never attain to that kind of obedience. You're talking about wholehearted devotion. Who does that? Who really loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind? I can't say that I do. Well, what do we say about that? Right? The very building of the temple brings them to the place of grace and forgiveness. At the temple, you remember as we saw in weeks before, they met with God. Here was the meeting place. And at the temple, they found the God of grace who would forgive them for their carelessness and their apathy and their indifference. For us, the first step in wholehearted devotion, the first step is to come to the embodiment of both God's commands and God's mercy. And that is the Lord Jesus. Where does it start? It starts by recognizing your apathy, your indifference, even your rebellion. And recognizing is falling short of the glory of God. And recognizing that you cannot do it. And recognizing that your only hope is the Savior who did do it. And to, and to be obedient to the gospel's command to obey or, or to believe in Jesus. It starts there. And to follow Jesus then is to devote yourself wholeheartedly to the will of God the Father as it's revealed in Jesus. But you say, but I still, I still can't say I do it with my whole heart. To which I reply, Jesus is still your Savior. He is still your Savior. Do you know what I've realized? I've realized that I need Jesus just as much now as a Savior as I did when I first believed in him as a boy. In my early days of ministry, in my early days of ministry, Saturday night was absolute torture for me. Absolute torture. I would say to myself, who are you to get into the pulpit? Who are you to preach to God's people? You're certainly not characterized as someone who's wholeheartedly, without exception, devoted to God. And you know what really helped me that really is Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30 where he says, Jesus is our righteousness. And I could take comfort in that and say, yeah, I've sinned, but Jesus is my righteousness. And now I can and I must obey him. And I want to obey him. And so when you're tempted... And listen, don't start thinking then that, well, I just can't obey God wholeheartedly. No, what you say is, because God is so gracious to me, I'm going to give myself wholeheartedly to him. 
And will you fail? Yes. Will you succeed? Sometimes. And you keep growing, and you keep growing, and you keep growing. Because of the grace of God. And so we come to Jesus, and our wholehearted devotion begins as we repent and cast ourselves on him for his mercy, and then as we seek to follow him. Now, you have to realize that there's so much more to this, I call the transaction, this transaction of obedience than mere submission to someone else. I think of, uh, I think this, to obey brings a whole new reality into being. Let me say that again. To obey brings a whole new reality into being. But what do I mean by that? I want you to think about this. My third grandson, Tyler, um, uh, my, my three oldest grandsons were adopted by my second son, and for several months before that adoption, they lived with us. You know, a couple of old people with three really rambunctious little boys. Tyler was the youngest of the three. And Tyler was really a challenge. Tyler was a real challenge. And I remember one day, little Tyler was going up the stairs, and I said to him, he, should, he wasn't supposed to be going up the stairs. He was, you know. I said, Tyler, stop right now and come down. And he looks over his, so, his shoulder. And I knew we were at the moment of decision. Is he going to obey or is he going to disobey? If he obeys, what reality will we have? We'll have smiles and happiness and an easier time and a growing relationship. But what happens if he disobeys? Then there's another reality, and that is correction and tears. And then some hugs. And then rebuilding that relationship. Two different realities hinging on whether you obey. Obedience, then, is a transaction that produces fruit. Okay? Obedience produces fruit. And so you shouldn't just know the character of obedience. You should know the fruit of obedience. Here's one. Here's one fruit. You enjoy a greater understanding of God's will. You will understand, you will have a greater understanding of God's will. Obedience produces greater understanding. Now no, because of their obedience, the people recognize Haggai is indeed a messenger from God. In the, this is the first time it says to him, verse 12, as the Lord their God had sent him. They hadn't recognized that yet. And then verse 13, that he is called the messenger of the Lord. They, because they begin obeying, they start understanding more. And because of their obedience, the people recognize the voice of God. They recognize the voice of God. Verse 12, with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. They see that this is the voice of God. Um, the message is truly a human word. It's colored by human personality. It even has a particular accent. But it's the voice of God. It's the voice of the Lord. 
The turning to God in obedience is always marked by a fresh discernment of his word. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you commit yourself to his word, then you're truly his disciples, those who are obeying him, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To obey him, then, you will know, then you will know the truth. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we all know that, we don't even need to turn to that, right? That as we live lives, if, we, if our lives are lived as living sacrifices, and we refuse to conform to the world, and have your mind transformed by the truth, then he says, you will know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. A commitment to obedience will always make God's voice clearer. His voice becomes more evident. The young man who's committed himself to obedience to God's word over the years will hear God's voice in the scriptures when he finds himself really attracted to a girl who's an unbeliever. Not just because of her looks, but because she's fun and he has a good time with her. And he's going to hear God's voice. He's going to hear God's voice that he shouldn't be yoked with her. Here's another thing. You enjoy a greater understanding of your relationship with God. You'll enjoy a greater understanding of your relationship with God. Verse 12. They heard the voice of what? Their God. You say, Tim, were you trying to fill up all the time and pick these little things out? No. I think they're there on purpose. This is a small but significant change in what Haggai writes. Because all in, the, in all the text before verse 12, he refers to God as the Lord of hosts. Right? This great, mighty God, the Lord of hosts, means the Lord of heaven's armies, which in some of our translations is the Lord Almighty. It, it, it emphasizes his power. But the people now recognize God as their God, which is a term of much greater intimacy. Obedience brings a greater intimacy with God. Now, it doesn't break your relationship with God. You will always be in relationship with God because of Jesus, not because of how well you do. But there is a sense of your relationship is affected by your obedience. You know, uh, and you know, I know this is a church that is no stranger to the Puritans. I, I know that. And you know, the Puritans used to talk about um, God withholding uh, his countenance, withholding the pleasure of his countenance when we sin, right? It's not that God writes you off and kicks you out and damns you. It's that your relationship isn't quite the same. And so obedience to the gospel of Jesus brings greater intimacy, okay? By the way, have you ever noticed how unbelievers refer to God as opposed to believers? Have you ever paid attention as you listen to your unbelieving friends and they talk about God? You ever notice how impersonal it is? They may use the word God periodically or the man upstairs or something like that, right? But it's interesting to me that believers refer to Jesus more often. They, they, they're more intimate in their reference to God. It's kind of interesting to see that. Now, there's also another subtle but significant change of phrases in verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of the remnant 
of the people. The remnant. Now you know what a remnant is, don't you? A remnant is the leftovers. Um, It's not the whole thing. It's the little bit that's left. All right? Um, When you go to the store where maybe you get stuff for sewing, you find the remnants are cheaper because they can't sell you the whole thing. You, You can get some of the remnants. Well, there's significance in using that term remnant. You see, the prophets before the exile. Now remember, these folks had been in exile, right? You have the people of Judah conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. They go into exile, and we find them in Haggai that some of them, a little bit of them, have come back to, um, to their homeland. And before the exile, the prophets used to talk about the remnant that obeyed the message of God. Look over at Isaiah chapter 1 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And Isaiah says, And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, had not left us a remnant, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. There the term remnant is used uh, as a remnant of the entire nation. If God destroyed the entire nation, then he could not fulfill his promises that he'd made to Abraham. But instead, there was a remnant of the nation that will see that fulfillment. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Micah 7, 18 and 19. Notice what Micah says. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now notice, he's talking about forgiveness for the remnant. In other words, the remnant in the Old Testament prophets, the remnant is the true people of God. Now compare that to verse 2. In verse 2, he just says what? These people. Now as they respond in obedience, he says... This, the whole remnant of the people. He uses that term remnant. Look, reciting the creed does not mark you out as the people of God. Reciting the creed won't do it. Possessing orthodox theology does not prove your identity. It is obedience to the voice of God in Christ and in the scriptures that prove you are the people of God. That's what sets us out. And he says, he calls them the remnant, the people of God, because of their obedience. So we enjoy a better understanding of the will of God. We enjoy a better understanding of our relationship with God. We also enjoy the power of God. Notice, because they chose to obey, what what does it say? God stirred them up. God stirred them 
up. He stirred up their spirits. He energized them for the work he commanded. The word is preached and it energizes you for the work it commands. And so, listen. As we commit to obeying God, as we come to Jesus, right? We have the Holy Spirit that energizes us. We have more than what they had. The Spirit energizes us for obedience. All right? So we enjoy the power of God. And lastly, you enjoy the presence of God. Here's the very climax of their obedience. Okay? Here's the very climax of their obedience. Notice what it says. Um, Okay. There it is. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. Here's the climax of their obedience. Now look, what have we said at this point? God had said, not that, God wasn't this spoiled bully in heaven saying, build my temple. He was saying to them, build my temple, which is the 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 place of my, of my presence. Build the temple. You're not building the temple because you don't want me. Build the temple and my presence will be with you. And here's what's interesting. They have to build the house for God's presence. But once they make that obedient commitment, God's presence is immediately manifested. Isn't that amazing? Build the temple, for it's the place of my presence. But when you commit to building that, then he says, I am with you. When the people responded to his voice in obedience, he said, I am with you. This is the already not yet of the Old Testament, right? He's already with them, but not quite yet. Not like he he should be, but he's promised his presence with them. And they can be assured of God's gracious presence when the temple is built because he's present with them now. And you know what? This is exactly what Christ promises us. You know, one of my most interesting passages to me is found in John chapter 14. Turn there. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Verse 23. Here's Jesus. Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that a fascinating verse? Here Jesus is saying, if you obey, you will have a sense of the presence of God. We will make our home with you. The Father and the Son will make their home with you. We know through Revelation here, even in the book of of John, that means through the Holy Spirit. But here's the point. We have have a, a, a greater sense of God's presence when we obey We have a greater sense. He makes his home with us. We have a much greater sense of what what God is and who he is for us. 
So, how do you think of obedience? How do you think of obedience? Drudgery? No. It is the way of joy. That's God's view. Do you have God's view on obedience? You must obey the call of Christ to follow him, to believe in him, to find mercy in him. And if you obey the call of God in Christ, then you will certainly have the fruits of that obedience as he works that in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thanks, Father, for the fact that you reorient us in the way we think about obedience, that you reorient us in thinking about how to glorify you, that you help us to see that there is fruit that flows from our obedience, fruit that can be enjoyed, fruit that we can love. So God, we thank you that you move us to obedience with these encouragements. Help us, Lord, to be like the people of old and to begin to look seriously at obeying you, knowing, Lord, that you accept us through Jesus and our obedience is given to you as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Help us then, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.